Well, this is easily one of those weeks where you just want to keep singing, isn't it? I got to tell you, I have the privilege of being at the front and hearing that. Man, oh man, may our King be praised. He indeed will reign forever, forever and ever. Grab your copy of God's Word as we just continue in worship now, looking at God's Word. Of course, we're in Exodus chapter 20. We have arrived at chapter 20. As Jerry's reminded us, if you're visiting, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please you can grab one now in front of you. Turn to the second book of the Bible, Exodus 20. This chapter, as you open to it, right in the middle of Exodus, this chapter will be our home. We will set down stakes for a little bit here. This is a landmark chapter uh, in this book, and we have arrived at it. It deserves our careful attention for the weeks ahead. So Exodus 20. A few years ago, a book was released by two prominent atheists. One was a high-ranking executive at the skyrocketing company, you know it now as Airbnb. One was a humanist chaplain at the high-profile university Stanford. So by today's standards, the best of the best, right? If you were to take a sampling of today, you got the cream of the crop with two guys that are going to give us the cream of the crop. These guys, in a word, had credibility. They had credibility. In the book that they released, these experts deliver their own, and I quote, their own ten non-commandments. Ten non-commandments. They had offered up, they were not only men of wisdom, worldly wisdom, but men of means. So they offered up $10,000 to any would-be Moses, and they received almost 3,000 submissions. By way of a panel of 13 judges, lo and behold, the 10 new commandments, the 10 uncommandments were selected. Let me read them to you. Number one. Be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Number two, strive to understand what is most likely to be true, not to believe what you wish to be true. Number three, the scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Number four, every person has the right to control of their own body. Number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Number six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Number seven, treat others as you would want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Number eight, We have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. Number nine, there is no one right way to live. And number ten, leave the world a better place than you found it. That sounds just about right, doesn't it? When you think about something, that sounds exactly right when you consider the source. 
That is indeed an accurate reflection of the commands of mankind, is it not? That's exactly what you get. That's the character of humanity right there. That nails it. That's it. The platitudes in those uncommandments that sound like a Miss America contest. The contradictions. Did you hear the contradictions? That reveal the absence of any critical thought today. I thought they were non-commandments and they sounded like commands. What about number nine? It'd be so funny if it wasn't so sad. There is no one right way to live. I thought you just gave us ten. Incredible, isn't it? Incredible. Yes, these so-called non-commands, again, I have to stress, non-commands that are commands, they reveal their source. Those commands, they speak for themselves. They're confusing. They're shallow. They're empty. Today revealed as, let's call them what they are, nonsense. That's just utter nonsense. Beloved, challenging times test not only the metal of hearts, but listen, they test the metal of words. Challenging times reveal words for what they really are. Never been more true today. And these words that I read ring just hollow. They contribute absolutely nothing to what plagues us. Not only in this day, but in all days. Those empty words contribute nothing. And again, as we've seen so often in our study of God's word, this is the very best that mankind can offer. Get two atheists, two worldly wise men, throw some money at it, and they come up with ten platitudes that are going to help us. That's the best you've got? This is, yes, the best that humanity can produce. The best that humanity can produce is empty. Is powerless, it's gutted, it's nothing. It's like the impotence of Pharaoh's magicians. When the going gets tough, what? I got nothing. I got nothing. Mankind in tough times is exposed for their empty works. And here it is, their empty words. And oh my, I resist every temptation to talk about the empty words today. Yes, these non-commandments, these ten words, reveal exactly who produced them. Just as, church, and here it is, here's your hinge, just as the commands look down, the words open in front of you reveal their source. This will become very clear. The ten commandments in Exodus 20 might be In fact, very likely some of the most well-known words in not only all of the Bible, in not only all of literature, but may very well be some of the most famous words in all of history itself. The Ten Commandments. And so we read them. And as we read them, we consider their source, where they've come from. Look at Exodus 20. I'm going to ask you for this portion to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus 20, look at verse 1 with me. Thus says the Lord, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Thus says the Lord. You may be seated. Father in heaven, Lord, we pray as we consider you the almighty source of these words. Illuminate our hearts to see what you would have for us in your word. Let us receive these words. And Father, let us understand them so that we can live them. All to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, you likely know these as the Ten Commandments, and that is not wrong. I want to be clear, that is not wrong. There are ten of them, and indeed, God is giving commands to his people. They're very much commands. That's true. However, in Exodus, they're never actually referred to as commands. You're thinking probably of Exodus 34, where in some versions it actually says the ten commandments. That word there for commandment is actually the word, the Hebrew word for word or word, the ten words. They are indeed words, as you think on Exodus 20. And again, we'll see this referred to later in Exodus. The ten words. And of course, we need to state this very unlike the words that we read earlier. Is that not true? These are very different words. That is clear. These ten words, however, are similar to the words we read earlier in this one thing. They reveal... Who gives them? They reveal who gives them. And we will see that here. And that source, unlike humanity for those uncommandments, the source of the true commandments would be Almighty God. The source of these ten words and his character revealed. That's right. We will see God himself described in these words his commands And that is to be expected. The revelation of Yahweh, of God, is to be expected in a book like Exodus, where God has been revealed. Is that not true, Westmount? We've seen the revelation of God in this book, in a burning bush, through signs and wonders. What about on the mountain just recently? Remember the thunder, the lightning, the thick clouds, and the trumpets. 
It's no surprise then that Yahweh is also revealed in word, in word, and here the ten words. No surprise. Ten words given to God's people, this newly birthed nation. It's a divine constitution, if you will. This is the founding, guiding document for God's people. And believe me, I know that's a terrible example these days, isn't it? When people are disregarding and tramping on constitutions and charters and bills of rights, I know, but bear with me, the heart of what a constitution should be, think of the United States, the heart of what a charter of rights should be, think Canada, is this, a founding, guiding document, a principled document in which all the rules of the land flow. And this document, these ten words here, are not only a divine document, but they have divine enforcement. These words are central and foundational to God's people. These words, as we'll see, the foundation to nationhood, to livelihood, in fact, to all of living. Now, saying that and feeling the weight of the Ten Commandments and the Ten Words, a few very necessary introductory comments are needed as we begin our study of these words. Number one, these ten words, as I've said, are the foundation, and here it is, from which all other words flow, and we're thinking directly now of the law, as you know it in the Old Testament. These ten words are the foundation and heart of Old Testament law, also known as the Mosaic Law, which we will get to in the weeks ahead. But they don't stand alone as words or as laws go. It's not just these ten in the Pentateuch, and you know this. These ten are the fountainhead for the full 613, by many estimates, of what is in Exodus, Leviticus, and in parts Numbers. Those would be the finer bits of law. These ten words are the big, timeless principles. The 600 plus are the time-pressed parts. Laws for slaves, which we'll see right out of the gate when we're done with the Ten Commandments. Laws for leprosy, unclean animals, feast days, almost like bylaws of the time, which flow from the fountainhead of the ten words. So that's one. Two, these ten words are both national and personal. They're both corporate and individual. This is very important. Throughout the ten words, look down at them now. You see you throughout chapter 20. Well, that's in the singular. You is in the singular. Yet, that is a collective you to the nation, to a people. Do you see that? You, Israel. You, corporate entity. You, my people, but it's also a personal you. This becomes clear when you think about, say, the fifth command, right? Honoring father and mother. It's a personal you to each national citizen, to each one of God's people. This is the beauty of the ten words, the corporate and the the singular. And that means, that you means, that this law, this word is binding both ways. It's both vertical and it's both horizontal, That is divine law where you're accountable to your brothers and sisters and to your God. Do you see that? You're accountable this way and that way. This shows us at this very early infancy stage of Israel that law-breaking has implications both ways. It's not some downstream product that your sin could affect someone else. At birth, 
spiritually. At birth as God's people, sin has horizontal effects. Three, these ten words are law, and we'll dive into that. But here's your first challenge this morning. But they're the law of liberty. Law of liberty. You say, well, wait a minute. I've never heard law described that way. I have no doubt you haven't. And you've no doubt heard this, that God's laws, I know you've heard this, are very restrictive and very negative. Have you heard that? He's just so restricting. Like, what can you do with Almighty God? Seems like everything's off the table. He's just so restrictive. Beloved, that accusation is as old as the garden. In fact, speaking of the garden, I want you to think for a moment of that garden law. You remember all those, the plentiful plethora of garden laws? Do you remember them? What was it like? No, there was one, right? Do you remember that one garden law? Just eat of this tree, but you may surely eat of every tree. It's so amazing in the original. It's emphasized every tree. Go eat of it. Go do it. Eat of it. But not this one tree. And not only just because God just wanted to set up a tree and, and do a little thing. No, because you'll die. You tell me what kind of law that is from the garden. It's from a loving father. I'll give you many. Eat, enjoy, but not this one because you'll die. And do you see? The law is not only targeted, as we think of this original creation example. It's a law of liberty even from the garden. You have access to most of the trees in the garden. But the law, think of the garden and map it now to Exodus. The purpose of the law is for liberty. To not die, but to live. And here it is, to live fully. Same with the ten words. The majority of the ten words are the same. And this will be a challenge. I know it was for me, it will be for you. A great challenge to come to something like law and the Ten Commandments and think liberty. But church, my first challenge to you this morning in a very grand sense with these ten words is this. Pull back and consider just how these words are freeing. And this is where we're going in the weeks ahead. Track with me for a moment. God says, have no other gods and their emptiness, their nothingness, their mirage. As you seek things and get nothing, seek answers, if you will, and get nothing. Seek meaning and get nothing. But this, instead this in the law of liberty, just live in the vastness and the limitlessness of the true God and his liberty. Is that not freeing? Live in the one that made you and his eternality. Or speak no lies with their restrictions and frauds and failures and disappointments and depressions and anxieties and oppression. Speak no lies. Don't live in them. Instead, enjoy living by the freedom of truth. Is that not freeing? To live by truth in everything. Oh, it hurts sometimes. It always does. The truth hurts, right? But oh, it's freeing. Always. Or don't covet what's not yours. How many of you have had neck strain from looking at what your neighbor has and wondering if you're keeping up with them and do you need this and that? No. Live and all the chiropractors would love this, the peace of just keeping where you're at and enjoying what God has given to you. Don't covet, enjoy what God has given. Is that not freeing? This is the law of liberty that keeps you right where you need to be as creations of the Creator. 
And it's just such a funny thing, is it not, that we rebel against the inventor and say, no, no, this is far too restrictive. Like Pinocchio's, just let me go. Let me go. Beloved, my prayer for you in this study of the ten words is just that, that you would see these words for the freedom in your maker that they are. The law of liberty, the way of life. Okay, that's a general on-ramp to this very important section. Now let's get specific and turn our attention to these verses. Let's begin to really dig in here. And again, we want to say a word on that. At times in Exodus, we've moved swiftly, and the text has warranted that. Other times like this, we can't do that, to do such a rich text like this justice. This is very much introductory today, but it is very important, and we need to slow down. So let's begin our look at these chapters with this, our first point, the word's origin. Look at verse 1, the word's origin. And God spoke all these words, saying, and we do need to stop there and just feel the weight of that first verse. Just one of these verses that we would fly by, like, give me the commandments. Look at it. Look, look right at verse 1. God spoke all these words. Look at it. God spoke all these words. These are not Moses' words. They're not Aaron's words. They're not hers words. They're not Israel's words. And we have to be reminded, these are not words spoken by old hermits in the wilderness. Not robed monks, not elder sages. This is not a think tank or a panel of experts. This is not a clever CEO or a progressive humanist chaplain. No, these words do not originate with any of those. Look again, these are God's words. God spoke all these words. Isaiah 45, 19. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. These are the words in front of you. Truth and what is right. That's what you're holding in your hand. Now, that should be enough and we should move on to verse 2, right? That should be enough. I mean, these are God's words, God Almighty, the one that made us. The Almighty has spoken his words, his authority, simple, and so we move on. But we recognize not so fast. I think you would agree the vast majority of people don't recognize these words for truth. Hence, an exercise to create uncommandments. Hence, exercises to ignore, to rationalize, to marginalize, to absolutely suppress these words. And you might ask this morning, maybe you might ask, why? These words stand alone. Why? Why would anyone not recognize these words? And that's a great question. Well, the same Almighty God in Romans 1 tells us that God himself is actually revealed to every one of us generally. That's right. Every single human being knows there is a God. That means we look at creation, we look at the order, we look at the design, and we see God. It just astonishes me how people can look at the cell, microbiology, creation, and deny the creator. But it's true, they do suppress it. I've been working on my patio, my family and I, the past two weeks, and we had, we were blessed to get really large stones. My back will tell you that, and aches. And when they were delivered, when the boys brought them in, it was all over our lawn, just very random. 
Well, believe me, by the grace of God, we have them in order in that patio, and I think it looks nice. But listen, no one would walk into our backyard and say, wow, a sandstorm did that. That's pretty amazing. I mean, you struck gold with that. I don't know how they landed in that position. And the thing there, like that's really, no. And we laugh, but this is what people do. We're just an accident. You know, it's just amazing. At the right time, presto, humanity. Why do they do that? That's how it is with the order of our creation. Origin speaks for itself. Now, one would think if you went up to any one of the created, that would be human beings, any one of us, because remember, the Bible says we know there's a God when we look at creation. Every human being, that's what our Bibles tell us. You would think if you said to them, well, you know that same one, that you know in your heart that made you, when you look at that sun and creation, that same one that created and ordered the waters, the land, the sky, the planets, the universe, that same one that created you now has a word for you. You catch that? He now has a word for you. You would think naturally they'd jump up and down as high as they can and say, well, tell me, what's the meaning of life? Tell me. I see him, my maker. Now I want to hear from him. You would think so logically, right? You would think so. But that is, we all have a story. That's not the way it goes, is it? That's just not the way it goes. Instead, this word, the one in your hand, tells us that the first human beings rebelled against the first words that God gave them. You remember the garden? They rebelled against that garden law, that garden word. They broke that. They instead sought to be God themselves. They, and here's your Romans 1, suppress the truth. Which is when you break that law, you will die. They broke God's law, and as a result, they plunged not just the two of them, the entire human race, into sin. But that's not all. Later in the book of Romans, Romans 5 tells us that every human being since Adam and Eve are sinners by nature, because of our ancestors, and now in our DNA, but more, Romans says we're sinners by choice. Romans 5.12, listen to this, says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. All sinned. Every human being since Adam and Eve. That's you and me and all of us. And the effects of that sin are innumerable. But here's the one we note here. When we ask, why don't people recognize the ten words in God's word? The effects of sin are innumerable, and the one you need to notice is it is blindness. Blindness. Blindness to the words of God. When God called the prophet Isaiah, he told him this. Mark it in Isaiah 6. He said, the ability of sinful people to recognize his word. Listen to this. As he calls his prophet, he says, it's impossible. I'm calling you, but they won't see what you're saying. God said this. The heart of the people would be dull. Their eyes heavy, their eyes blind. Isn't that stinging? God calls, but says because of their sinfulness, they will not see, nor will they hear. Same truth, by the way, in the New Testament. You can mark this. 1 Corinthians 2.14, which says, The natural person, that is the person in their natural state, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discern so god gives by way of special revelation his words words of truth words of life 
And yet a fallen humanity cannot see and cannot receive them. That's what's going on. That's bad news. That's bad news. The foundational words of life, think about it, the inventor, the creator with words for his created, life-giving words of truth, divine words that originate with God, words that all of us need, every human being needs, but words the humanity cannot see. This, of course, explains the uncommandments we heard off the top. This is precisely why we get there and many other empty words. Mankind suppressing God's words and attempting to replace God's words with their clever own. This also explains why so many reject God's words, these ten and all the others. Now, that is news that really and truly is bad. It's just bad news. And I know you've had enough of bad news. In fact, you've had enough of horrific news, which really that is. Imagine Words from the one that made you that you cannot see. To be given words of life and the inability to see and receive them, that's horrifying. And friends, in light of that reality today, it is my joy to herald to you this morning good news. That there is a way for eyes to be opened. It's astonishing, isn't it? God made a way. I simply want to read to you the word straight from the only one that can do that, that can give sight to the blind. He said this at the beginning of his ministry. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and listen to this, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's from Jesus Christ, the only one that can open the eyes of the blind. He is, after all, John 8, the light of the world. He is, after all, John 1, the word made flesh. He is the one that opens eyes to see these words. That's the only way anyone. Do we hear that, friends? It's the only way anyone is ever going to recognize this text for what it is. The divine law of God. And I say this in part for us as an exhortation, but I pray it allays frustrations as you talk to family, as you talk to people, I'm sure, about pandemic narratives and the rest. I pray this is helpful. Only Jesus Christ can open the eyes of the blind. Only him. And how? How does one receive it then? You say, how do they receive that sight? If Jesus has it to give, how do they receive it? We go again to the words of Christ. Mark 1.15, the beginning of his ministry, he said what? Repent and believe in the gospel. The only way, the only way is through repentance and faith. That's it in this Jesus. And that is good news. Beloved, without the great physician opening blind eyes, these will be in Exodus 20 just words. That's what they are, sadly, to many on the broad way. They're just words. Why did you spend your morning, you'll be asked, all morning studying those ancient words? Those kind of old scribblings? Why? Because they're blind. But of course, they're not just words, as we've already mentioned here in Exodus. To God's people, these are the ten words that originate with God. And in this first verse, you see they're directly from Him. 
Later in Exodus, Exodus 31, I want you to put this picture in your mind. We're told this in Exodus 31. These are written on tablets of stone by the finger of God. There it is, by the finger of God. And I have to mention this, this timely moment here. This is a wonderful compliment. Jerry's been taking us through bibliology, the different studies at the chapel. We'll get back to the fact bibliology is that it's God's word given and all the ways God has given his word. And when we think about the Old Testament, we also think about the new and how nothing changes in the new. Second Timothy 3.16 says what? All scripture is breathed out by God. What a picture. The finger of God in the old, the breath of God in the new. These are the words of God, the one that knit you together in your mother's womb on this Mother's Day. He gave you these words in front of you. As you seek truth, you have it. Church, please let us not miss this as we begin this important chapter, this study, the word's origin. That's verse 1. We have time for one more by way of introduction, and I would say necessary introduction to this important section. Two, we have the word's origin, and we also have the word's context. The word's context. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, for the sake of both time and understanding, we need to keep this very simple this morning. Two main ideas we need to grab a hold of here before we dive into the ten words. And let's just say they're chronological. I think that'll be helpful for us. Think of a time, a layer of time. Number one is this. Let's not miss this order. Sinai comes after Egypt. Sinai comes after Egypt. What do we mean by that? Said another way, that is law after deliverance. Do you see that? Law after deliverance. Said yet another way, that is words after grace. Words after grace. Do you see what we mean by that? Important order. Remember God first appearing to Moses on this very mountain back in chapter 3. And here's how we would press the point. What did he not say to Moses? He didn't say, Moses, in order for me to deliver you and these people, here's law to follow. I got some scrolls. Just look behind you. I want you to unfurl them and I need you to do that. Just follow this law. And you know, if you do that and you do it perfectly, then I'll deliver you. Then we can talk about deliverance. No, no, no. Praise God. He didn't do that, right? Praise God. No, God delivered first sovereignly. Sovereignly, his sovereign initiating action, here it is with no help and no action from Israel. And then after all that delivering work, a freed people then, then they're back to the mountain. Do you see that? Egypt, then Sinai. Deliverance, then law. Grace, then words. This is so vitally important, church. This is where false religions go astray. They just flip the two. Do this, then that. And if we're not careful, this is where we can veer off too. Don't lose grace. Don't lose grace. Grace, front and center in all things, in his choosing of you, beloved, and in giving you the ability to follow the words. It's all him, all the time. Don't lose sight of that grace. God's words given here, not as a how-to manual on salvation, but given by grace as a means to continue to enjoy the deliverance they've already freely received by the grace of God alone. Don't miss that. 
these words just the outflow of how God's people will walk as God's people. Remember, that was the original promise from God, the covenant promise. And that brings us to our second order here, our second piece of context that we need to see. Sinai comes after Egypt, or Sinai follows Egypt, just as Moses follows Abraham. Moses follows Abraham. What do we mean by that? Well, both those men of God received words, did they not? And we're again reminded of the words that Abraham received. Let me just, we've read them so much in our study. Let me just remind you, Genesis 12, you can mark this. Remember these first words to Abraham, Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. By the way, he said those words not after Abraham measured up and did anything. He gave him, he gave him those words in his sovereign grace. He said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, what? All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Again, we've looked at that so extensively. We almost know that by heart, I would imagine. Those, the first words of the Abrahamic covenant initiated by God. And that's been imported here, right, in our study in Exodus. We see all the outflows and implications of the Abrahamic covenant here in Exodus, leading right up to this moment. All in the Abrahamic covenant, the words to Abraham outlining the promise, the work, God's work and God's covenant to his people, his choice. That's what we've studied. Abraham, then Moses. Now, what you don't have with Moses 500 years later is a rewrite. You don't have Yahweh appearing on the mountain reworking the covenant terms. And this is so crucial because we functionally can do this and we need to keep this in our mind. You don't have Yahweh showing up saying, I think we need to balance things out here. We need a brand new covenant and we need to do it this way. Because it was so one-sided before, you need to fulfill. No, you don't have that. No, God is not all of a sudden doing something new here, like there's a new way to be his. That's not what's going on. As if with Abraham, it's sovereign grace, and with Moses, it's special works. No, what you have is a continuation of the same promise of God to his people. Same promise, same relationship, but different administration. You see that? Same promise, outflowing a different way, different outflow. And that's the key. That is the context of these words within the greater promise. The promise made to Abraham that has not changed, the promise to Abraham that still stands. Downstream to those words to Abraham, that promise, but fully within them, God now gives these words. Words not for Israelites to earn salvation, but to live out the deliverance that has already been freely given to them. That is what these ten words are designed to do. In fact, these words are given as further deliverance and protection. To a people, what have we seen in Exodus? To a people prone to their own way, prone to self-destruction. You see the protecting God there? Like the eagle parent flying under the young eagle, knowing what they're capable of, protecting them. To people freed as we've seen, but they immediately start to what? Grumble at the one that freed them. 
Beloved, these words, I want you to consider this, these words, and you have all kinds of connotations of commandment and law, and again, not wrong, these words given in this time, in this administration, for Israel's sanctification. That's why they're given to set them apart, fully devoted to God. This is how they live now as God's people, already free, already delivered. It's like in ancient times, the slave purchased. These are the guidelines, the rules, the instructions of the home. This is how it goes in our home. You're already purchased. Now this is how it goes. Don't do this so that you can become here. Same thing here. God gives these words for their sanctification, set apart for his people, fully devoted to him. These words to Moses are the implication of the words to Abraham. That is the words context. Now, I know we won't have time this morning to get to the words yet, but I pray you'll see, and even as we land shortly, we need to get to these introductory things on words that are so important. Until then, though, until the weeks ahead, we need to consider these things, and I want to end with this, the purpose of these words. Let's not miss this. The purpose of these words. The purpose of these words, we could say, is fourfold this morning. Number one, the purpose of these words is to reveal God's holiness. That's one of the first things that these words do. They reveal a holy God. Throughout these words, this law given here, God says this. Let me just give you one embedded at the heart of the law. Leviticus 19.2 I am holy, God says. I am holy. Israel, God says, I am holy. I am set apart. And then catch this. Here is how you will see that I'm set apart. As you live as my people and you see that I'm set apart, you're going to see how you live set apart. And it will reveal how holy I am. This will become clear as we march through the law. God's holiness. That's the first and most important point, to reveal a holy God. Secondly, the purpose of these words is also to reveal our sinfulness. Our sinfulness. You say, well, where would that be? Well, the narrative of the Old Testament proves that in one sense. Just the playing out of Israel's inability to keep the law. And the rest of the Old Testament books are layered and shot through with sin. But as we arrive at the New Testament, the Apostle Paul confirms that. And I want you to listen to these words in Romans 3. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and listen to this, the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And we just talked about that. But then listen to this. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Listen, as Paul continues in Romans 7, listen to what he says. Thinking about now the knowledge that the law gives of his sinfulness. Listen to this. In verse 7, what then shall we say? We're continuing with this discourse in a sense. Paul's reasoning through the law and sin. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? Basically he's saying because we have knowledge of sin, is the law sinful? By no means. Yet, if it had been, not been for the law, I would not have known sin. You see that? 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commanded, listen to this, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see what he's saying there? Not only knowledge of sin, but the law arouses sinfulness. I can give you no greater illustration than this, especially on a Mother's Day, providential, than the first law that mothers give their children. Leaving a room, checking on the water boiling, don't touch that. What does that arouse? A knowledge of what's wrong and a beeline to that, right? But do you see? That's a microcosm of a greater truth, is it not? Through law we know sin, and through law sin is aroused. Now we don't miss the greater protection of law, which we'll be at many times over the next few weeks. But that's the second purpose of law, that we would have knowledge of sin. Knowledge of sin. So that's the second purpose. Third, the purpose of these words is to reveal our need for fulfillment. This is so important. Don't you sometimes feel, well I know you do. You feel the futility, right, of living under the standard. I'm not saying despairing. That's not what I'm talking about. The futility of God's high standard that he calls his people to live by. You feel that futility. I'm with you. I know that. And we'll see, and this is the point, when we live under law and standard, you recognize very quickly, or at least you should, no one can fulfill the law. No one can. Even the mightiest in Israel, this is amazing, even the most mighty, Moses, man of God, David, man after God's own heart, they were colossal failures at key moments in their ministries. Moses, there's the promised land, you're almost there, he strikes the rock. King David is just swept through half the land, he's at the height of his power, and he takes Bathsheba. The Old Testament illustrates fulfillment is impossible for human beings. Impossible. In fact, later in Romans 7, and I know you'll identify with this, Paul illustrates this human condition. We pick it up in verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. We know that. But not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Then he says this, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Man, we, we could spend the rest of the morning just talking about that. When I want to do what's right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And you've cried this cry in verse 24. I know you have. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't do it. I can't do it. 
I see the law, I see the standard, but I'm incapable of fulfilling. The law points you and brings you and whips you to your knees to say you cannot do it. You say, well, that's just so futile. Where's the hope if we can't do it? We can't do it. Who will deliver us from this body of death? But beloved, here it is. Don't just before the birth give way to the labor pains or shrink away in the labor pains. Let it come to fruition to see that is the point of the law. To point you to the only one that can. That's our fourth purpose. The purpose of these words is to point to the promise. As he read this for us in Galatians 3.19. Here's the question. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, all the things we've said, until what? Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Isn't that amazing? Added until the promise, until one that could. All your futility, all your can'ts, all your feeling that is to bring us to see our need for a savior, for a fulfiller. And this is what he said, Matthew 5, Jesus again, beginning of his ministry. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. So many New Agers today would say, you don't have to worry about that. God understands. Oh, don't sweat it. Listen to me. I have a moment and I need to say this. Sweat it. Fear it. Let it wrestle you to the ground. Because in that moment, you don't let someone off the hell hook right there. You give them heaven and the hope of heaven, Jesus Christ. It is not okay. And everyone that falls short is going to hell. And that is why we need Jesus Christ. It is not okay. Don't listen to those empty words. This is why in your futility, when you recognize you can't do it, the purpose of the law is to say, here's one that can. And here comes the book of Galatians to say, until the promise has come. Jesus Christ, the sure and great fulfillment of the law. And as we're about to sing, only in Him can we stand. That's it. We can only stand in Christ. Because, beloved, you know this. You can't do it. And the joy in the good news of the gospel is that He can, He did, and now you can in Him. Isn't that good news? That's the good news you go out and you herald to the world that is sifting through the junk of this empty news and words. You give them the only hope. We had a call this week from someone looking around at the world. This church, in fact, we had many calls. They're like, I don't know what's going on out there. I'm afraid. This is true. People calling churches saying, I'm afraid. And listen to this. I'm not making this up. I need to know truth. (laughs) Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't say God understands. Give them the hope that he offers to every human being. That's what you give them. Don't miss this opportunity. You've been praying for it your whole life as a Christian. And God has given a grand silver platter of opportunity. Wide open doors. People are begging for the truth. Don't miss the great and sure fulfillment. Point them to Christ. Jesus Christ. He fulfilled. He can. And he's the only hope. The only way. Don't miss him now in these words. And we will get to them next week. The ten words. Don't miss him in these words. He's all over it. The great and sure fulfillment of these words. We will see fulfillment and pointers all throughout. 
I pray for your eyes to be open. I pray maybe for some of you it will be the first time you see for receiving salvation, but listen, maybe for living life, living out that grace that God has given.